I took a job at an aluminum extrusion factory where I would get up, I'd be at work by 6 a.m., I would punch out by 2, I'd wear my metatarsal boots, I'd come to Hopkins filled with grease and grime from, from working in the factory, but I, got, I took a job that paid me enough so I could live and pay my rent and got me to Hopkins for practice at 3 o'clock. What's up, everyone? I'm Paul Rabel, professional lacrosse player in New York and with Team USA, and this is Suiting Up Podcast. This week's guest feels like a long time coming. We think that 23 episodes ago when we launched this show, we served you potentially the best coach of all time across sports. His name is Bill Belichick. Our 24th guest is, backed by data, at least the best player coach in lacrosse history. He's also a close friend of Bill, and he's a close friend of mine and was my head coach at Johns Hopkins University. Dave Petromala is widely regarded as the greatest defenseman in lacrosse history. He's a member of the U.S. Lacrosse Hall of Fame, and here's the stat, the only person to have won an NCAA national championship as both a player and a coach, and the only person to be named both player and coach of the year. So, that solves that. Now, for all you lacrosse fans out there, we'll strike that. All of you sports fans... I'm going to tell you something. This is probably the best piece of long-form content available right now, as long as you fall into one of the following categories. Number one, of course, you're a Johns Hopkins fan. You're an alum, or you're just a college lacrosse fan. Coach Petro is what I believe, at least, one of the most recognizable people and brands in our sport. He's super communicative, and he's a dynamite storyteller. Number two, you're a sports enthusiast. Right here, we have one of the most prolific coaches, strategic minds, and relationship-building people in all of college sports. He eats at the dinner table with Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, John Harbaugh, Marvin Lewis, and more, literally. The style of the show resembles just that, conversation. He's open, vulnerable, fun, and serious. Number three, you're a young, aspiring college lacrosse player or athlete. You should definitely tune in if this is the case for you. Coach gives you a blueprint of what he's looking for in a recruit. And number four, the last bucket. You're a parent that wants to either give your daughter or son opportunity in sports and potentially a path to the next level in sports and education. Coach tells you how. And with that, enjoy the show. I'm especially fond of this guy, if you can't already tell. He played a major part in my maturation as a competitor and person. We talk about those formative moments. Suiting Up is a show that explores the psychology, playbook of tools, and strategies of the most influential people in sports, entertainment, and business. Enjoy Coach Dave Petromala. Our show's first sponsor is Harry's. And Harry's is so confident you're going to love their blades and their sponsorship of this show that they're giving you their trial shave set for free when you sign up at harrys.com forward slash suiting up. Just pay for shipping. Now, let me tell you something about shaving. I used to shave every day, and now I have a beard, but I like to still shave every day around the edges, especially my neck, to stay clean. And with Harry's, the quality of their blades and comfortable glide leaves no marks on my fairly rigid skin. It's clean. And like with our guests on Suiting Up, we love founder stories, where Jeff and Andy were two ordinary guys unimpressed with marketplace razors and high prices, so... They purchased their own German factory plant with over 100 years of blade making experience. Now leverage that manufacturing e-commerce to sell leading five blade razors for half the price of their competitors. 
So claim your free trial today. It's a $13 value for free when you sign up. You can go to harrys.com forward slash suiting up right now to access this deal. That's harrys.com forward slash suiting up. You get a weighted razor handle, five precision engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel, a travel blade cover, all of that. Harrys.com forward slash suiting up. Coach, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm really excited for this. It's been a, a long time coming. We started this show with Coach Belichick, who's a friend and confidant of yours. And I recorded with him in his offices. We're here in the quarter center. We were originally sitting in your office and the, the men's Hopkins soccer team's playing right now. So all this music's going off and we're in a, a study room. Is this a study hall? Yeah, this is the Martha Roseman Study Lounge. Okay. So it's, it's literally, it's, it's, it's got a purpose. Yeah. Uh, it's named after uh, Martha Roseman, who was a wonderful, wonderful lady. She was the dean of the Office of Academic Advising and Counseling. You, know, you being a Hopkins guy, understand the role that that office plays yeah. here and for our program. Um, Martha Roseman was, you know, sometimes in your life you meet that wise old man or that wise old lady. She was that. Hmm. And uh, for me, she was everything. I don't, uh, the guidance that I got from her, the support that I got from her, uh, I don't graduate from Johns Hopkins without her. And when I got married, she was at my wedding. When I graduated, she got my jersey. Wow. And when she passed, uh, I had the distinct privilege of, uh, of speaking at her service. So pretty special lady to, to many, many Hopkins lacrosse players. So we're sitting in, uh, in Dean Roseman's office right yeah, now. I, I actually feel really good about this now. The, uh, this place, the quarter center, is, is fairly newly developed in, in that I never got a chance to, while I was playing here, to be a part of the quarter center, although I spent hours on end in your office. I think the, the maybe not underappreciation, certainly not underestimated, but uh, uh, the, the amount of time that players spend with their coaches away from the field or away from the strength conditioning room, just talking through playbook and life is a big part, a big chunk of that relationship building in any program, and especially with this one. Well, I, I, you know, I, I can't speak for others, but I think I can... I think I can forecast or anticipate how important it is. Um, for us, it's everything. Um, I think the most productive hours for me are between 6 and 9 a.m. and then 6 and 9 p.m. Mm. You know, in the 6 and 9 a.m. is when no one's around. You can get a lot of work done, whether it's recruiting, uh, film work, uh, you know, uh, really important things to the program. And then obviously the day starts and there's people in and out of your office. There's the minutia, the daily minutia that you deal with. And then from six to nine, that's those moments after practice mm. where guys are milling around the locker room or stop in your office, uh, walk by your office yep. and, you know, it's you like call office them hours. In. You basically have office hours. Yeah. From, six to, from nine to six. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and for me, those are the most gratifying moments here as a coach. You know, I think about the, the hours that you and I spent talking philosophically. Yeah. Uh, I think of the hours I spent with Michael Evans and Tucker Durkin mm -hmm. and the things we talked about. Yeah. I, I, I recall when we were over in the old offices, way, way, way in the back of the athletic center, we used to have lunch, myself, Seth Tierney, and Coach Duan. We'd have lunch 
with Bob Benson, Adam Doniger, and Michael Pizer. Right. Once a week, we'd have lunch and we'd just sit in there in this cramped office. Yeah. And, and, and the six of us would talk about anything but lacrosse. Right. Politics, life, you know, girls, right. uh, you know, you name it, we family, we talked about it. And those are, are, are the relationship moments that allow you to get the most out of your players. That's where you, your players figure out how much you care about them. That's and where you build the relationship with them. It is. You know, everybody everybody sees what they see out on the field. They see what they see on the sideline. And those are just, that's just a product of what happens behind a closed door. And for me, you know, aside from practice, and, and I love practice. Yeah. I really enjoy it. I look I forward to it. Yeah, I know you know. <laughs> and But it's that time behind a closed door, or even tonight sitting here, this doesn't feel uncomfortable at all because right. we've done this a million times. That's right. And it's those moments behind those cl- that closed door where your guys – figure out, hey, he's got my back. He believes in me. He understands. He's here to help me. He, I'm more important to him than just a guy that can put the ball in the back of the net. He cares about my academics. He wants to know about my family or what's going on with my girlfriend and I. And that's where the foundation of your success on the field is built, in my opinion. I always tell people that often ask why I decided to go to Hopkins or they'll ask about the recruiting process. And I, I kind of chuckle as, as I stumble over recalling the, the times where I was on the phone with different head coaches. And I chuckle because I think, man, now I'm, I'm 31. You're getting ready to turn 50. By the way, you're old now. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel good. My body feels good. Um, and, and I'm like, you know, these coaches are, are having conversations with 16, 15, 17-year-olds, and you're, you're effectively trying to court them in the recruiting process, and it's an uncomfortable conversation, and there's not really many interests that are aligned, at least personally, from an evolved 30, 40, 50-year-old to a 16-year-old, but I would have 10-minute tops recruiting conversations and no disrespect to many of the coaches that I have relationships with now uh, since graduating, but five, 10 minute conversation. I mean, what can you talk to a 16 year old about? We would talk for an hour on the phone. And I, and I tell folks that, that it was a genuine conversation, not to be confused with that of my girlfriend, but it was as intimate of a conversation <laughs> as I would have with a girlfriend. Well, I don't know that I've ever had my recruiting conversations called intimate, but <laughs> you, well, you think about it this way, Paul. You're talking about 16, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds and there being a disconnect between an older coach and, and, and a young teenage player. Mm. We're just getting away from recruiting 13, 14-year-olds. Yeah. Imagine the challenge there. And, and I have to tell you, it's it, some of the young men that we've met and finding out how mature some of these kids actually are is pretty impressive. But my conversations now with guys that are 2019s and 2018s that are older, juniors and seniors, the depth of those conversations are much different than those of uh, 2020, 2021, uh-huh. you know, and, and, and I need to pay you a compliment. You know, it's funny. I use, uh, I talk about you often in the recruiting process and I tell uh, recruits, I, 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 I 
toot our own horn a little bit, and I tell them how many family members you had that went to another school, right. and North that, Carolina. Yeah, then yeah. that dad <laughs> had a that. you know he had a Bible next to his bed, and under the Bible was a Dean Smith book, and right. you know I home visit you, and you know I had to sit on top of the North Carolina pillow. That was a power move, so no one could see the pillow in our um, living room. Yeah, <laughs> but the one of the greatest compliments you can give someone is to say that they listen well. It's a quality that I think Coach Belichick has has mastered. He wants information. He wants to learn. He wants to hear what people say. You may not be, you know, uh, you know, a, a big time coach or, or 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 a great mathematician or a great musician. He doesn't care. He believes there's something he can learn and get from everybody, and he listens so well. And I tell the young men that were recruiting in the families, the thing that really impressed me about you, even given your situation with all those family members going elsewhere, you listened. You were open-minded. I'll never forget asking you, you know, what do you, what do you want to be? And you started to tell me, you know, about business. And I said, no, 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 you may not recall this. What do you want to be? Who do you want to be like? And you told me, Bluntly, I want to be the Michael Jordan of lacrosse. Now imagine me hearing that, knowing that all these Carolina people are in your family. I'm thinking, wow, this is not going well. (laughs) But then we talked about Hopkins and your ability to, to be very visible in Baltimore and to be on TV and to be at a place where lacrosse is a major priority. And, and comparatively speaking to other places, yep. you know, the priority. Um, I give you a lot of credit that you were so open-minded to listening. And, you know, I share that with them with the hopes that, you know, they'll that they'll listen and they'll understand that, you know what, I've got to keep my eyes open, but I also have to keep my ears open and listen mm-hmm. to what, you know, I'm hearing from these coaches. Yeah, that, I really appreciate that compliment. I would say that's an area that, uh, has caused me in, in a way in my adulthood to gravitate towards this form of podcasting because I'm just generally interested in other people. I would say that uh, a challenge that I've had growing up is is getting so excited that I would interrupt. And and I think, you know, that that's part of just growing up and, and learning when to keep your mouth shut. But uh, that's also part of passion. That's part of passion. Yeah. <laughs> so we we were in our first couple of weeks at the school, going back to where the old coaches' offices were next to the gymnasium, and we would play basketball competitively. I remember. Yeah, and it was it was one of my bigger, definitely first uh, learning experiences where I, I had I, you know, I quite literally ran into a wall. Uh, we lost a, a game to you guys, uh, the coaches, right? So we would play the three of you who were. Very talented, and and for those that haven't seen Coach Petro take a fadeaway jumper, I, I you know you grew up playing basketball. We'll get into your origin story, but it, <laughs> it was unstoppable that day. And I was playing with Kyle Harrison, and who was super talented, all American basketball player, and we couldn't beat you guys. And it, it, I I worked myself up into tears. I was so upset, so competitive. I didn't know how to handle my emotions at the time. And that you was actually the- kicked the ball. Yeah. Into the ceiling that day. I, I mean, I'm listen, not sure you recall, this but we, isn't a we good lost. Start we, for me. we lost <laughs> the ball that day. <laughs> you got a kid who's saying he wants to be Michael Jordan of the sport, and then who can't handle a loss and is kicking a basketball in uh, front of his head coach. 
I was must have been you know uh, oblivious, but looking at it now, as I would be, I'm mortified recounting it. But you uh, you took me, I think, that first year and then that first day directly under your wing and taught me how to handle losing, which is not something that is taught often in sports because we're we're so obsessed with winning and losing is not okay that you just don't ha- know how to handle it, and that's why I was in the shape that I was. Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting. You know, I I, rec- I recall that uh, yeah. that run in the back gym. I think when we were done, the three of us went into the office and got our oxygen tanks out. Um, <laughs> you know, running up and down with you and Harry and, and some of the other guys. I actually had some pretty good basketball players on that team. We did. And, you know, Benson Irwin was yep. another was another one. But you look at it and you use the word, oh, "Gosh, I'm I'm mortified now to think I did that." And for me. I looked at it as, gosh, we got a we we got a real competitor here, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we just have to teach him how to handle competing. Mm. You know, you, you said earlier you, you you interrupt people, you know, when you were younger. Well, because you're excited, you're emotional, you're 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 engaged. And one of the great compliments I can pay you, other than I, I said you listen very well, you you engage, you like to engage. You're engaged in, in conversations. You look people right in the eye. You're, you're genuinely anxious and interested to know. And that day, you were engaged in that. You've, you've always been engaged in all the stuff that you've done. It's what's helped you become the, the great player that you are and a very successful person in other endeavors outside of lacrosse. But the guy that kicked that ball that day, you know, some people might go, oh, what a baby. You know, oh, that's yep. awful. Mm-hmm. I looked at it saying wow, we got a real competitor here. He hates to lose. And we just had to teach you how to handle that because while we didn't lose many games when you were here, the last thing we could allow was losing to get in the way of us winning. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't allow failure to get in the way of your successes. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes sense to you. It makes a ton of sense. I remember... Even uh, we had a great season that year. We were sixteen and zero. I was a freshman, and and just thought that was the way things went. (laughs) You just win. And then (laughs) our sophomore year, we didn't make it to the final four. We lost in the quarters to Syracuse, and then junior and senior year went to the championship and split them. But I remember even after wins, I would get calls and texts from you and Coach T and Coach Dwan. You guys would be able to pick up if. You know, we would win, I would have a bad game, and you were just like so aware of the emotional intelligence, the capacities of the players. And I'm sure, I'm certain it wasn't just me. You guys are so committed to the team and, and players interpersonally in the locker room and then, and then your relationship with them directly. Uh, it's, it's, it is, it's a daunting, it's a daunting position that you're in as a head coach, managing the organization, trying to win, trying to coach. And I'm, I'm not just you know blowing smoke here. Uh, the relationships that are of priority is are, are what make this this organization go. And I'm just looking at the wall here too. You you um, mounted letters. I remember. I think mine's up here somewhere. It is when you guys first built out the quarter center which again talks about your attention to detail and competitiveness and wanting this to be the best destination for college lacrosse. 
You helped raise the money, which was what, north of $10 million? Just north of $10 million. $10 million. You helped design it. Everything, every square inch is covered. I remember hearing the national championship trophies are encased in Tiffany's glass and you know, these, these mounted um, letters on the wall you sourced from alumni to write about their Hopkins experience and why it's meaningful. So when players come in here and study or potentially struggling after practice, they can read it. So talk about where, where did you get that obsessive attention to detail from? Uh, you know what? I don't know. You know, I, I don't know that you're, you're, you're born with it. it. It's something I think you develop. And, and I, I truly believe the word that, that, that's at the root of that kind of stuff is the word passion. When you are passionate about something, whether it's you're passionate about competing, well, then no matter what it is, whether it's a pickup basketball game or, uh, you know, a basketball game with your brother or shooting out on the turf with a friend saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to pick corners here. You're relentless in your effort to be the best you can be because you're passionate about it. You love it. You want to be so good at it. Yeah. Well, when you have that passion, it, details come easy. You know, it's when you don't have that passion that paying attention to the little details are hard because they seem so unimportant mm. when you don't care about it. So, you know, the old adage, you know, hit the line. How many times have you heard me say that? How many times has every coach in America on the basketball court, on the volleyball court, on the tennis court, lacrosse, hit the line? Well, really, what does it matter if I hit the line? What, what if I'm just two inches off, coach? I, I, you know, I didn't mean to do it. And sure, you, you didn't mean to do it. But when you hit the line every time, it shows an attention to doing something very, very little. And it's the little things that add up to the big things. So you know I am a huge locker room guy. Yep. And I want and expect the locker room to be pretty organized and spotless. It's pristine, yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I've softened my stance a bit on that. Not much. Okay. The locker room's still pretty pretty clean. Yeah. Um, but there's a reason for that. You know, yeah, we bring alumni through there, and, you know, it's important that the locker room look appropriate for, for visitors and recruits and, and look impressive because it is a representation of our program and, 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 and us. But the real reason was if you could take the time to make sure your gloves went in the right spot and your helmet was in the right spot and your stick was in the right spot and your clothes were folded, if you were able to pay attention to those little details with the understanding that it meant more than just keeping a locker room clean. It meant we were, we, we were portraying a first-class image. It meant that when strangers or visitors came, they got to see great representation of Hopkins. It meant that you kind of went above and beyond what's normally required. It's those little details that I, I think are the difference between a champion or a championship team and an average player and an average team. You've, you've learned a lot over your tenure as, as player at the highest level all the way through coach at the highest level. Would you say that uh, you have 
developed that you mentioned learning that skill set of attention to detail were you let's just let's just ask it this way were you like that when you were younger oh gosh no yeah no you know i i, I grew up in in new york long island um i'm the product product of a divorced home i had a dad that was pretty meticulous um you know expected things to be done in the right way expected uh you know please thank you you know, when you shook hands, it was seven forward, five fingers, two eyes. Um, when someone talked to you, you engaged them by looking them in the eye. Uh, so I grew up in that environment, but I didn't grow up with a, a father that was, you know, a great disciplinarian. He he wasn't that way. Um, I, I just I guess I just knew what his expectations were, and there was transparency or clarity to his expectations. Um, and I was not the guy I am today, Paul, I, I would tell you, you know, in all honesty, I was a bear. I was a bear. I hope my kid, I hope my twins are nothing like I was as a teenager. Our show's sponsor is offering you $20 off their suitcase by visiting awaytravel.com forward slash Rabel and using promo code Rabel during checkout. I tend to run out of juice when I travel. My phone. I think it's a combination of overuse of social media, uploading YouTube videos and podcasts. Anyway, one of my favorite things about my away travel carry-on is that I have an embedded phone charging port, so my phone no longer dies. It's also fast, sleek, it's lightweight, and meets all TSA standards, which is hugely underrated. And as we do with many of our guests on Suiting Up Pod, the founder story is super important. And for away travel, these were two friends from New York who found themselves at JFK with dead phones like me, delayed flights, and a bright idea. Luggage with power. Thus, Away Carry On was born. Away uses high-quality materials while offering a much lower price compared to other brands by cutting out the middleman and selling directly to you. Choose from a variety of colors and four sizes, called the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, or the large. I go with the carry-on. And again, here's a special offer. For $20 off a suitcase, may I remind you this is suiting that podcast, visit awaytravel.com forward slash Rabel and use promo code Rabel during checkout. That's awaytravel.com forward slash Rabel. You've told me your, your biggest regret in sports was... Not being a captain at Johns Hopkins. But you know what? I, and I don't want to jump over your no, childhood. No, I never deserved to be a captain at Johns Hopkins. And, and maybe you were mortified by kicking that ball. I'm mortified to say that at that time, I didn't want to be a captain. I didn't want the responsibility of having to interact with my coach daily, weekly. I didn't want the responsibility of making sure my teammates were doing the right things. Because quite frankly, no offense, I wasn't doing the right things. So how could I expect anybody else to do what I wasn't doing at the time. I was extremely uh, immature. Uh, I was extraordinarily social, which my priorities were not in the right place growing growing up as a teenager. And my dad wrestled wrestled with this with me. And, you know, when I got to college, my coach wrestled with this with me. Um, and But I would say that I'm so thankful for Johns Hopkins and the people that guided me here. Don Zimmerman, our coach, was so patient with me and probably so, 
so frustrated. And you were just at his National Hall of Fame. In I, I, what, what, a, what a great day for that man. Um, a great day for Hopkins and for all of us that played for him. Mm-hmm. Bill Tierney was here. Uh, Jerry Schneidman, a Hopkins great. Um, I remember when I came back for my fifth year, before that happened, he pulled me aside and said, hey, you're coming back to graduate, right? That's the expectation. You know, now, I don't know that it ever crossed my mind not to, but they were clear in their expectations of me and and and, and, and how I needed to grow and develop. Martha Roseman, I mean, that's the woman I graduated. My jersey at Hopkins was important to me. Yeah, Wearing that Hopkins jersey mattered. I gave it to her. That's how important she was. So there were people here that helped mold me to become a better person, and I really needed to grow and develop as a, as a person. Yeah, I, and and I I want to stay on this topic because you were one of the most, if not the all time greatest player in our sports history. And so, with all the flaws that you acknowledge, let me read uh, awards and stats, just a few of them because there's a laundry list. But 1987 national championship, two time Schmeiser Award winner, best defender. 89 uh, enters award winner for nation's top player. Had they had the twerk on there, that would have been it. Multiple time All-American, won two world games, was the world games MVP as a defender, so best player in the world. Um, So as a coach now in your seat, for me, someone who uh, modeled modern Coach Petro, because I looked at your success as, as a coach uh, not being as exposed to lacrosse, certainly in the 80s and 90s, I had a later start per, per most kids my age. I looked at the attention to detail, the competition. Uh, I was constantly learning from you as a head coach, and, and that makes sense. Now, there are other guys that probably model who you were in college that you can empathize with uh, better than most because you were that person more socially inclined and, and less attentive to detail and, and maybe crossed plenty of lines and didn't do the captainship. Um, so, so that's the picture I want to paint. The first question I have for you is, is how are you able to be the best player in the world when you're not as, as disciplined as we all hope the best player in the world is? Good question. Um, I had great people around me and they allowed me to do what I was okay, what, what I was decent at. They allowed me to play. And I had other people that were leaders. I had other people that did tell a teammate, or tell me for, for that matter, hey, you know, let's take it in tonight, time to go home, or we don't do that. That's not right. Um, I had great, great teammates around me. I, 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 I to this day, I'm still very close with many, many, many of them. Um, I have dinner tomorrow night with, with three or four of them that are coming in early so we can just kind of grab dinner together. For alumni um, weekend. For alumni weekend. Um, you know, I had great coaches. I had guys that actually let me be me on the field. Now, I'm certain they didn't want me to be me off the field, and that was clear, <laughs> but they allowed me to be me on the field. So... I, I, I guess the answer to your question, Paul, is I was able to play at, I, I would hope, a successful level individually because I had other people around me that let me do what I was good at. And if I was, was asked, 
you take know, the ball away from anyone. No, I, no, you I wouldn't say that because the ball off look, the ground you know what's funny? You, you say take the ball away from everybody, and I remember a name named, guy named George Gillis. You don't even know who George Gillis is. <laughs> never heard of him before. Maybe never hear of him again. He knows who he is, and he knows what he did to me. <laughs> Out on this field, on Homewood Field, we played Army. I went over his head three times, and he ran by me all three times. I remember those moments. Yeah. And, but I could do that because, you know what? I knew Greg Lilly was there if I did it and I didn't get it. You know, I knew James DiTomaso or Steve Ciccaroni was there to make a play if I didn't do that. I had such confidence in those guys because our relationships were so strong that – I couldn't. I could not trust them. Yeah. You know, we were doing. We were learning about life together, on the field and off the field. That's how close we were. So you wonder why I try to take those relationships, right, into the coaching realm. So I, I was fortunate to be able to do those things because I didn't have to do the things I wasn't good at. I wasn't a good leader. I didn't have to worry about it. I wasn't elected a captain. Now, again, years later, I look back, and shame on me. You know, I'm, I'm good enough to be the head coach at Hopkins, but I'm, I wasn't good enough to be a captain. Mm. And that's a true statement. I wasn't. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had coaches that afford, put me in a position where I could be successful. I had teammates that allowed me, when I was in those positions, to be successful. And if I did something that wasn't successful, they were there to bail me out. And I, and I, I, I truly mean that. Um, the other, the other answer that to that question, Paul is really simple. I loved playing. Yeah. I, I loved practice. Now I have to tell you this. I hated running. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I hated running. I don't know many that liked it, but I was the guy in the corner under my breath saying things and I'll never forget. We're talking <laughs> about it today. Coach Juan and I were talking about it today. Coach Zim would put us on the end line. Monday was run day. And it was always four stops, one, two, three, four, yeah. four, three, two, one. Right. And I'll never forget, we'd get on that end line, and I'd be mumbling under my breath, and the first thing he'd say is, you got something you want to say? Yeah. <laughs> and it was always myself and another guy. And the answer was no, coach. Right. But we loved to practice. We would do six on six, and it was competitive. Yeah. We would, we would come out before practice, and we'd switch positions. You know, and the defense would play attack and offense, and the, the offense would get the pole. We'd bring out tennis balls. We'd play hockey in front of the goal. We just, we loved to play. And when you love to play and you have coaches that put you in a position to be successful and that challenge you each day and practice and prepare you, and you have teammates that you can count on, it's not hard to be. It's not hard to be a good player when you got people like that. What are your thoughts on this? I, I was reading this was a couple of years ago. One of the many Michael Jordan books. It may have been called "Come Fly with Me." I'll figure it out and throw it in the show notes. But the the article, the, the 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 portion of this chapter was about how different than what we see in AAU basketball or club lacrosse now, uh, which are loads and loads of games year round. Kids are playing beginning as, as, as early as five and six, and they're playing, you know, through high school, call it hundreds of games in a year, right? We're talking some weekends consecutively, they're playing five, six games over a weekend. And so the, the, the part of this chapter said, hey, Mike, Michael Jordan grew up and only played rec ball. He had eight to 10 basketball games a season, and then basketball season was over. 
and the competitiveness of him was never was never minimized by oh you have another game later today or you have another game tomorrow and so when he would lose it would stick with him for a week and and, and my guess is that certainly I didn't grow up playing club across that you didn't and so playing fewer games helps continue to harness that competitive juice do you, do you buy that that playing too many games you water down your ability to 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 put a level of importance on I, sport? I, I buy it wholeheartedly. Yeah. Um, I think you, in, in in not having a lot of games, he didn't have the ability to quench his competitive thirst. Yeah. And when it was over, you know, he wanted for more because he was passionate about it and loved it. And just, you know, as, well, we played a game and just as maybe we're just starting to get rolling, it's over. I struggle, and I don't. I don't uh, have a problem with the club guys. I know some coaches, you know, look down on the club. I, I have good relationships with a lot of the club guys, mm-hmm. and they've been very good to me and to Johns Hopkins. I think it's been great for the growth of our sport. Yeah, I agree. But here's what I would say: my twins, as you know, play, and they are a part of the club scene, and they probably. I probably allow them to play more lacrosse than they should, but they love to play. They really enjoy it. So I don't, I don't force them to do anything. I don't say, hey, you have to do this. I'll ask, are you interested in doing this? If the answer is yes, great. If the answer is no, that's fine too. Here, here, here's the deal. You show up at a tournament. You play two games on Friday, three games on Saturday, and two on Sunday. Mm. And at the end of that weekend – there's no championship. You've just played to play five games, but not to earn a championship. So what happens is the more you play, the more losing becomes comfortable and the less important winning becomes. So what I mean by that is you lose a game on Friday morning, well, no big deal. Yeah. We got another game this afternoon. Yeah. And we got three more on Saturday and two more on Sunday. So when you lose, you know you have six more opportunities to play again. Yeah. But when you win, you know, oh, okay, we won big deal. We got another game. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that desire to compete is saturated. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you just – it's just over it's it's saturation of of the game and winning becomes less important and losing becomes more acceptable and what happens is when we get guys here we play once a week once a week we don't get a chance to play again yep saturday night and sunday morning and then sunday night we have one opportunity and you know, for 365 days a year, we're, you know, we're training, thinking about it for, for how many hours of a season? Two, two hours times 17? Yeah. So, you know, those moments are so magnified. And yet, you have guys that come, and I guess what I'm saying is losing becomes acceptable. Yeah. And... Winning isn't as exciting yeah. because oh, we got another game. Right. Uh, you know, 
I 100% understand. I, I think it, it's, you know, the, the, the conversation around competitive nature and just competitive instinct, which you have more than anyone I've ever met, is it, it, I can kind of draw a comparison. Most people listening have played a, a game of pickup hoops before. And when you lose, the common thread is let's run it back. Let's run it back because you're so pissed that you lost. You're like, let's run this thing back so I can get retribution. Uh, over time, though, that uh, that type of style um, <clears throat> either is ignoring what I had to deal with when I kicked that basketball, which was like, how do you process this loss? How can you improve as a person? How can you be better next time? You're just ignoring all of that and you're rolling into the next game. Fr from, from a competitor standpoint, how do you – either define competition or what do you look for when you're seeing a host of recruits or you're seeing a player on the other team or a player on your team? You're like, that guy's really competitive and here's why and here's how I know. You know, I, I think too often people compete against another jersey or compete to, for a score when, in my opinion, you compete against the game. You compete against yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you go out and one of the great things about basketball, football, lacrosse, within the concept of the team game, there are individual matchups. So you get to measure yourself both individually and collectively. And I, I think what happens is there are people that compete to compete. And I, I, I tend to think I might be one of those guys. Yeah. And I tend to think you're one of those guys. Yeah. I think Joel Tinney is one of those guys. And the thing that you guys like me, you, and Joel have to learn is it's okay to compete to compete. But our teammates need to know that we're competing for them yeah. as well. Is it almost like you have this tunnel vision because you're you're so – you're so connected to what's happening. It's, it's almost like everything else stops. Yeah. I, you know, I, what I've learned is that for me now, competing is a process. It's not the outcome. It's about the things it takes to be successful. It's about, you know, people get comfortable. I, I think I heard Nick Saban talk about this recently. And it, it was really a, a very valid point. You know, people get comfortable they're comfortable just kind of getting by and that being successful takes a lot of work yeah and most people don't want to do it and the people that are willing to do it are those competitive people you know sometimes people look at you and they, you're a jerk yeah you know this is a pickup basketball relax for me for you for for Kyle Harrison for Gary Gate Pick a basketball wasn't about winning and losing. It was about a chance to to compete, about a chance to measure myself, measure our group against your group. Yeah. And what I've learned now is I'm not outcome driven. That's why I love practice so much. Huh. Is I, I I love spending time on the things it takes to be successful. And, and, and Nick Saban, I mean, it's amazing to me what that program has done. That's and ridiculous. consistency is a word that is so hard to, 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 to get hold of in sports. 
you know, you look at all these teams that win Super Bowls and it's tough to win back to back to back. And, you know, the next year there, they were up one year, they're down the next. Human nature says we want to be comfortable. We want to be comfortable in our relationships yep. with our family. We want to be comfortable in our relationships with our spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends. We want to be comfortable in our relationship with our friends. And we don't want to do things that challenge those relationships, that challenges that comfort. Yeah. And you think about it, you go out on the field, you want to go out, you want to play, you want to have a good, you want to enjoy it, and, and you should enjoy it. I believe that. But you want to be comfortable. And success isn't achieved without learning how to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. I, I really believe that the best teams, the best players are the ones that learn how to feel comfortable in those awkward moments, in those yeah. uncomfortable moments, because they're so passionate, because they're so driven, because they don't want to let a teammate down. It's those qualities that help define who the more more successful players and teams are. You said uh, two really good things. One is is shared amongst your your peers who have who have been on this show who are all high performers, uh, and that is to be successful flat out, no other way around it. You have to work your ass off. It requires hard work, and, and that's no joke. The second part, though, uh, was was a bit of a revelation for me in that. And tell me if I'm wrong, but but to be successful and defining competition requires a level of vulnerability such that you just put yourself out there. And like you're in a way, you mentioned comfortability with your relationships and with your teammates. The leaders have to do the things that people for a long time have said, oh, he's sucking up, or that's goody two shoes, or he's working too hard. And that requires guts to basically say, hey, I'm going out there and I'm doing this. And, and, um, and especially in team sports where there's all the peer pressure to be cool first. Yeah, I, I think to be successful, you have to take risk. Yeah. You know, to risk, to, to achieve success, you need to risk failing. Yeah. You have to put yourself out there. You know, what is competition? What is competitiveness? It's putting yourself out there completely. Mm -hmm. It's putting everything you have into it. It's you know, preparing. Mm. It's watching the film and taking the time to do that. It's spending extra hours on your craft, whether it's shooting basketballs, kicking soccer balls, hockey pucks, or shooting a lacrosse ball. It's investing all that time, yet knowing you could still invest all this time, energy, and effort and walk away with a loss. Yeah, And that that's putting yourself out there and the successful teams and the real competitors aren't afraid to do that. The real competitors aren't afraid to say, look, this is everything I got. I have nothing more to give. And at the end of the day, that's what this is about. Hmm. Putting yourself out there and leaving everything you have on the field, knowing I've left no stone unturned. I'm doing everything I can to help my team and myself achieve success, but understanding that sometimes the world isn't fair. Sometimes the other guy's just better. Sometimes the other guy or the other team plays better. Sometimes the other team's lucky. You know, not, I, you know, for me, luck's when opportunity meets preparation. But there are those moments 
the true competitors, you know, what's a competitor? An easy way to define it is the guy that's willing, the girl that's willing to just put themselves out there and give everything they have to whatever it is they're doing, whether it's school, you know, athletics, a relationship. I mean, think about it. Comfort. That's a horrible word for me. Mm -hmm. You know, well, why do you want to feel comfortable on the field? Well, I I don't want to overextend myself. I want to do this. I want to feel comfortable doing it because I don't want to feel bad if I've put so much into it and it doesn't work out. Why Why do relationships fail? Because people don't want to take the risk of being vulnerable mm-hmm. and speaking their heart and for the at the risk of maybe ridicule or you know discomfort. And because they don't do that, the relationship fails. Com- competitiveness is just throwing it all out there and saying, you know, this is who I am. This is what I am, and I am giving you and this everything I have and. I understand it might not work out, but the percentages say that the people that do that, the teams that do that are the most successful ones. And there were times as a player and a coach, and we'll shift gears to coach in a second, uh, that, that you were up against the absolute rival and competitor that our sports ever seen. Uh, a surefire ESPN 30 for 30 one day, and that the best defender to ever play the game would suit up against the best offensive player to ever play the game in Gary Gate. And you mentioned him earlier as you referenced pickup basketball. Talk about, as a player, that ultimate, almost probably euphoric state that you would be in where you were like, okay, I've got my match. This guy's as competitive as me. He's as talented on the opposite, on the opposite side of the field as me. Everyone's watching. I mean, attendance when you were playing on site was nuts. I was watching some of the games preparing for this interview. When you guys played in the Dome, when you won in, in, uh, in 87, you, uh, you, you, you beat Cornell in the final. Didn't get, a, didn't get to play Cuse, uh, where we would have thought would have been that game. You played Cuse in the Dome. It was jam-packed. Yep, yep. What were those moments like playing against Gary Gate? You know, sometimes as an athlete, you're fortunate enough to compete against someone or another team that brings out the best in you. Mm. And for me, Gary Gate brought out the best in me. Um, I view him, and this is with all due respect to you and your counterparts, I view him as the greatest player to ever play the game for many reasons. Me too. For many reasons. Yep. Uh, whether it be creativity, the, the, the he you know, revolutionized the game in certain ways. Longevity. No, still plays. Still plays. And still plays pretty well for that matter. You know, you're kind to say I was the best defenseman. That's not for me to say. But what I, what, what I did have was an opportunity to play against the best player. And to, to be successful, I had to, I had to do more. So when we played that game, and this is, this is probably not the, the best thing for me to say. For me, that week of practice, there was a little more to it. Yeah. For me, that, you know, my preparation was just a little bit more. You can't but, ignore that, though, No, right? but, I mean, but, but just, Paul, what we're striving for. like getting ready for, for a championship. Yeah, but what we're striving for as coaches yeah. is to get guys to do that oh, all the time. How do you and do that? And that's 
when you get the great teams. Mm. That's when you get the great players. So I had the good fortune of playing against a guy that was a game changer. And in order for me to not be embarrassed, for me to achieve some level of success, and more importantly, in order for our team to be successful, he was the focal point. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, there, there, there was another one of him. Yeah. You, you, you <laughs> know, and, and, and a couple other really good players and John yeah. Zilberti and, yep. and those guys. Yep. Um, but what happened is when you play against someone like that, they force you, if you want to be successful, to do more, to invest more, to practice more, to raise the level of your competitiveness in your game. And for me, I had that. My whole career, I had him my whole career. I had him in college. Yep. I had him in club. I had him in the world games. So think about, and, and, and again, I need to be careful here. I look at him as like a Magic Johnson, a Larry Bird, a Michael Jordan. Think about playing against those guys. Yeah. Well, man, you better get your stuff together if you're going to play against those kind of guys. So for me... It was an opportunity to measure myself, to measure our team yeah. against a great player. And what, what we now know years later was were great Syracuse teams. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was enjoyable. But I had that throughout my whole career. A lot of times people don't even have anybody like that to challenge them. Oh, I mean, you you, know, I remember you used to tell me that well, you played with a mean streak. You would get in people's shit. You would cross-check. You would take the ball from them. You would get, go up and down the field. You said that Gary Gate would never flinch. He didn't talk trash. You'd check him late, and he wouldn't complain like a lot of us look at the ref. And you should you see that. should be a fuck. You know, that's what I'm always doing. Hey, don't fuck. The classiest competitor that I've ever played against. I'll tell you a quick story and. It's an odd one, but we played um, in uh, an old tournament up at, just outside of Syracuse in Liverpool. I forget what it was called. I was just post-college, and Team USA was up there. We had had our tryouts, and we went up to play in a tournament, and we played a team called the Syracuse All-Stars. Syracuse All-Stars was, was made up of just that, a bunch of All-Stars. Gary Gate, Paul Gate, you know, John Zilberti and Marichek Ma and McNamara and Palem and all those great players. Who, by the way, our Hopkins team, they brought out the best in us because they were great players and a great team. So we play, um, you know, we wound up winning the game. And, you know, it was back and forth. And it was competitive. And myself and Steve Mitchell... We're covering Gary and Paul Gate. So if I was on one, he was on the other. Vice and first. these are just two gigantic men, right? Yourself and Steve well, Mitchell. Well, Steve Mitchell is gigantic. I, I, I was all of maybe 195, 200 pounds at the time. Steve <laughs> Mitchell so, well, was 6'6". 6'4", 6'6". Are you 6'5"? I mean, no. Yeah. So the game ended. We went into the showers. Yeah. And, and, and and I promise you, this is clean. <laughs> we went into the showers, and Steve Mitchell and I are in their shower, and we're like the last ones in the locker room, getting ready, you know, to get out, and, and in walk Gary and Paul Gate. Right. You know, and they're built really, they're, huge. they're, they're big, yeah. strong guys. And I will never forget, Gary turned around and, you know, to put his head on the shower, and I'm, I'm looking at his back, and I'm, I'm mortified <laughs> because he has got, 
more welts, <laughs> marks. I mean, you, you probably could have seen the imprint of, of, of whatever stick I was using. And I'm looking going, my gosh, I'm responsible for at least Assault. three or four of those. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking Mitchell's probably responsible for more. Right. And yet, Gary and Paul never said a word. The great ones don't have to. And they just let their play speak for itself. And they never talked trash. They played the game cleanly. When oftentimes other players didn't play the game cleanly against them, um, and I like to believe I did, um, they, are, they, they were true competitors. They were classy competitors. And obviously they were great players. So you were great. So was Steve and, and both Paul and Gary. You won a national championship as a player and a coach and then player of the year as a player and coach of the year. You took the traditional road to your position now as a coach in that you were an assistant coach for several programs. Um, then you were defensive coordinator at Hopkins. Then you went and took the head coaching position at Cornell. It was named coach of the year in 2000. The following year went to the alma mater in Hopkins. Do you have advice for a lot of the young coaches out there that, that want to either be in your position one day or want to figure out, hey, this is a gauntlet. Do I need to just be consistent? Do I need to be persistent? Are there tips? Are there hacks that, that can get me to the top or, or have my career progress better? Uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 look, everybody's road is different. So mine was what it was. There are some coaches whose road went through high school. Dave Cottle was a high school coach huh. and went on to Loyola College. I believe Dick Adele was, took a similar route. Um, there are other guys that, you know, were assistants for long, long periods of time and then became a head coach and finally got their opportunity. Um, I took the opportunities that were available to me. And I, my advice would be to search out those opportunities. And, 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 and it, in this profession, it can't be about the status or the money. For me, I took my first coaching job in my fifth year of college um, in 1990 as an assistant coach at the Gilman School. Mm-hmm. Now, I have no coaching background. I have no coaching pedigree. I'm 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 a fifth year senior in college. Yeah. I'm still hanging out with the college guys, right. you know. And the and the guys I'm coaching aren't much younger than me. And I was afforded an opportunity there, and I realized I loved it. And I thought that first year that I was okay, I was good at it. Yeah. But I knew immediately. I I knew immediately what I wanted to do, and then the following year, uh, Tony Tony Seaman took the job at Hopkins. And he offered me a job as a part-time assistant for $3,000. Now, how are you living on $3,000? So I worked like total comp. Not $3, a month. <laughs> $3,000. You know, I could eat, eat $3,000 worth of food in about two weeks. So it goes to tell you. So I took the job. And in order to make ends meet, I took a job at an aluminum extrusion factory where I would get up. I'd be at work by 6 a.m. I would punch out by two. I'd wear my metatarsal boots. I'd come to Hopkins filled with grease and grime from, from working in the factory. But I, got, I took a job that paid me enough so I could live and pay my rent and got me 
to Hopkins for practice at three o'clock. And then because of that, you know, I was fortunate that some people, I think, saw the sacrifices that I was willing to make and my desire to actually be in the profession. And I got a full-time assistant coaching job at University of Pennsylvania, spent a few years there, went to Loyola College, where I think I really learned how to coach under Dave Cottle. He taught me how to work, and he taught me what it meant to coach and how important coaching was to the game. And then came back here to Hopkins and got to cut my teeth here for three years and then went up to Cornell for, for three more, three great years at Cornell. And gosh, I'm so blessed and, and, and thankful that they took a chance on a guy who had no head coaching experience. And, and quite frankly, when I look back at some of the things that we did, I kind of cringe and say, gosh, I can't believe that we did that. We would never do that now. Like budgetary uh, Everything, and... not budgetary, everything. <laughs> I mean, and I had a great well, assistant. you know, you're the, you just take a job as a CEO of Cornell. Yeah, lacrosse, yeah basically. No doubt. And, and, and it, you know, you make mistakes. Right. You know, my advice would be to, 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 to look, listen, and learn. You know, and, and, you know, I went there and when I came to Hopkins, I looked back at the things we did and learned what worked, what didn't work. Um, you know, I was willing to take an opportunity and I wasn't concerned with, you know, cash or status and just find a way to make it work. If, if that means being a volunteer and working somewhere else to make it work, then get your foot in the door and make it work. John Crawley's doing that right now. That uh, Ryan Brown did that out at Marquette and they got their foot in the door. Now you have an opportunity to prove yourself. So I don't know that there's an opportunity too too small that you can't take advantage of what about the transition from Cornell to Hopkins? That was probably representative of your, your, your first real difficult conversation with the relationships you had built, and they were really meaningful ones because you were coach of the year. How difficult was that to leave a program that you built to well, your alma mater? Well, first off, I didn't build Cornell. Richie Moran built Cornell. I helped. I hopefully helped us recapture some things that had gotten away. Of course, um, but Coach Moran is a Hall of Fame coach. He built Cornell lacrosse. I I was the caretaker for three years. Yeah, and, a great uh, one. Though. And Jeff Jeff Tambroni stepped up and 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 took that to a new level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I I I came back to Hopkins, and I I'll tell you one of the hardest days for me here was my first year. We had scrimmaged. Hopkins every year when I was at Cornell. I, I wanted to scrimmage my alma mater. To be the best, we wanted to play the best. Yeah. We wanted to recruit against Hopkins and Princeton and Duke. And we knew if we weren't in, in, in with those guys, we weren't hearing those names, we were recruiting the wrong guys. So we at the time, we were recruiting. If, if, if Duke, Hopkins, and Princeton were recruiting you, we were recruiting you too. Yeah. Because we knew they were recruiting the best guys. Yeah. So I came back here and I kept I kept the scrimmage because Jeff said, look, you're going to keep that scrimmage, right? I didn't want to play it at all. Right. But now here's my assistant, my, my assistant coach, now the head coach, and he wants to compete against a quality opponent. Yeah. So we kept it. I will never forget that game, that scrimmage ending and going through the handshake line. Yeah. And guys wouldn't talk to me. And there was a young man in particular on that team that I was extraordinarily close with. Ryan McClay? 
Yeah, it was Ryan McClay, who I have a world of respect for him, his family, the kind of person he was. For for Cornell to get Ryan McClay, Ryan McClay took a chance on on us as coaches. I played with him a year he took in professional. He took a chance on our vision. He bought into that when he could have gone to a program that was having more success at the time. And I don't know if you've ever had this conversation with Ryan, but I went through the line and he wouldn't look at me. I was literally I was heartbroken because he had meant so much to me. And he was heartbroken because I had picked up and walked out the door. And, you know, as time goes by, it heals all wounds and everything turned out to be fine. But that day in that handshake line was extraordinarily hard. And it was with mixed emotions because I was so proud and excited to be back at Hopkins at my alma mater with, you know, with a senior class I had recruited and left and never coached. So the Sean Natalins, the Brandon Testas, the Denahans, I recruited all those guys as an assistant and helped recruit them, but never got to coach them. Yeah. So I'm coaching a group that I so desperately wanted to coach when I was an assistant, and I'm shaking hands with a group of guys that really bought into what we were selling and what we were doing. Hook, line, and sinker, those guys were awesome. And now I'm shaking hands with them having left them. Yep. And talk about, you know, talk about feeling like, like you're in a rowboat in a storm with nothing, you know, nowhere to go. And that's exactly how I felt that day. And I assume that some of those feelings resurfaced in a different way. You, you fast forward through those first four years with Hopkins, you have the number one team in the country. You are firing on all cylinders as a coach and the team is bought in. I remember the 04 team was my senior year. To this day, now again, I didn't watch. Uh, I was born in eighty-five. Your senior year of high school. My senior year of high school. I, uh, I I didn't see the the, the Syracuse and Hopkins teams and all of the even the Carolina teams early on play. But this Hopkins team uh, with with Connor Ford, Adam Doniger, Kyle Harrison, Kevin Bolin, that offense, the defense led by Chris Watson and 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 Benson Irwin and the whole. The whole list goes on and on, and that team didn't win. The four number one seeds that you had heading into the tournament in today's day and age would be like people's jaws would drop. How is, how is this organization, organization doing it? Which is another topic, but you go through four years, number one teams don't win a championship. That, that first full class of yours – was the 05 team, yep. the Kyle Harrisons of the world. What was going through your mind and your staffs, Coach Tierney, Coach Dwan? Did you just feel like, you know, what the hell? How do we how do we do it? Oh gosh, you question everything about what you're doing, you know, and you're looking and you're going, what's it gonna take? Yeah. You know, in 03, we had a great team. Yeah. Bobby Benson, Adam Doniger, we had two of the great leaders that I've had as captains. I mean, talk about two guys that knew the game, that were committed to Hopkins, committed to their teammates. I mean, I'd come up here to the office on, on Monday mornings, and not long after I get in, there's Bob Benson and Adam Doniger in the locker room watching film. Now, I'm not sure how they worked their academic schedule around that, <laughs> but those guys were committed. They were driven. And they were driven. I'll never forget, Peter Lesore paid Adam down a great compliment. We were talking, and and he said, Coach, I know what I need to do. I'm just going to follow Adam Doniger around, I'm going to do everything that Adam Doniger does. 
what a great compliment to, to, to a guy like Adam. But we go into 03, and we play great against Syracuse. I mean, we run away with the game in the semifinal, which turns out the year later, they did the same thing to us. They repaid us for the year mm-hmm. prior. But we go into the championship game, and we are playing great. Mm-hmm. And we run into Virginia and Tillman Johnson. Yep. You know, and everybody wants to talk about Tillman Johnson and the great game he had. He was the reason. I watched that film not long ago. And you want to talk about a group of seniors that were committed. Chris Rattelli, uh, I think it was A.J. Shannon. A.J. Shannon, Canadian. Yep. One of the first Guys like that. to really break into uh, the field. Billy Gladding. Mm-hmm. But it was Billy Gladding. That's right. And, I mean, there are guys diving in front of shots and things I hadn't seen a Virginia team ever do. Yeah. And they were so committed. And not that our guys weren't, but – Goes back to what you that, said about competition. It, it was that, Someone's going to lose. That difference. That was the difference. It wasn't just Tillman Johnson, who saved everything. Everything. It was. Insane. And he was. was he, he was great against us. He might have been better against Maryland the, the two days earlier. Yeah. So then we don't win that game, and we feel like we got a great team, and 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 have every right to believe we're good enough to win it, and we don't. Then we turn around the next year, and we get back to the same place, and boy, did we lay an egg. And Syracuse throttles us like we did the year before to them. So now we're thinking, what is it that we have to do? And you know what? I'll never forget receiving an email from Kyle Harrison that he had sent to his teammates. And he was kind enough to include me. And basically it said, hey, fellas, it's been three weeks since, you know, we lost in the semifinals. I'm at the beach. I can't taste my food. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to see anybody. I just want to get back to Hopkins and get back to work. And, you know, the gist of it was of that nature. And he said, I am going to work so hard, and I am going to work on my left hand, and I am going to do everything I can to be the best player that I can be, but I expect you to be doing the same. We had great leadership that year. We had a team that policed itself. We had a team that was so hungry and had such a chip on its shoulder. It was pretty talented, too. Yeah. Yet you think about it, the margin forever is slow, slight. We, we won like five one-goal games that mm-hmm. year. We won it because we believed we were going to win it no matter what because of the effort and the preparation that we put in. We believed we were going to win it because our leaders believed we were going to win it. We had the best player in the country in Kyle Harrison who told told the team we were going to win it. You know, so, you know, it's interesting. You look back and we were blowing teams out in 03. Yeah. And yet our margin of victory in 05 was one goal in like four or five games. Right. <laughs> and yet that's the year we won it. Yeah, a bunch of overtime wins. Yeah. And- so you, you, you just never know. And, and you know, the, the, the lesson is, is, is simple. You just keep your nose to the grindstone. You keep believing in your culture. You keep believing in what your coaches are doing. Uh, sometimes when you when you have so much success but you don't have the ultimate, ultimate success, it's easy to start to wonder why, what's wrong, we're not good enough, we're not going to do it. And we, we had an extraordinarily special group that year. And, you know, that showed in – how we handled the semifinal game against Virginia. 
which was wild. I, I remember ah, even even hearing this. I I because I wasn't on the team that lost to Syracuse in the semis. I was a f- part of the freshman class coming in that year, so we didn't get Kyle's email presumably in June. But I look at his collection of work, and it was always the first goal of the game and the last goal of the game, and and kind of held us all by our hands throughout, and we contributed. And then when we needed him with ten seconds left against Navy, he scored. Yep. And when we needed him out of the timeout in this Virginia game, he scored. Uh, first goal of the game, first game of the season in Princeton at their 1950 whatever it is stadium. Left-handed. He scores. Yep. yep. Uh, and, and it was always just a sigh of relief. And so when you're a freshman again, you're like, "Wow, this is this whole thing's pretty easy." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, but you because you, you have such yeah, great leadership, but you say you don't it's realize easy, it. But you know what? Think about what you were learning. Yep. You know, culture is passed down. And you know, think about what you guys did. That class graduated, and you you went to two more yeah. Final Fours, and you won your you, you know you won another championship, yep. and we were in the championship game your senior year. Which, by the way, six goals was an unbelievable effort. But you look at what you took from that senior class, and they passed down to you a culture that you continued. To pass down, you know, and I think you know you look and go, well, what happened, and how come you haven't since? I think we got a little comfortable. Hmm. You know, I think we were a victim of our own success, and as a coach, you're constantly battling complacency. You're constantly battling human nature, which is says, I want to be comfortable. I don't want to be in an uncomfortable position, yet the only way you're going to win and be successful and be great individually or collectively is if you can get comfortable in uncomfortable situations. And I think you're more than ever, I was on this email that you sent out to the alumni this morning, just giving us an update on the fall. And, you know, we're not going to get into the the, the players and the games and the scrimmages that you've played and how practices have been going, but you talk about, evolution, you talk about change, you talk about team culture. Uh, for the coaches specifically, because the game has changed so much, I mean, we're talking about 2005, this is 12 years ago, when, when I was a freshman, uh, the, the, the player is different. The player is more skilled, but the psychology of the player is different. You've had to change your style of coaching, what, you know, for better or for worse, because you know, you're a type of guy that you know, expects excellence, wants the competition, but you have to now deal with the psychology of a player that is coming from those hundreds and hundreds of club team games. And you're almost now rebuilding, uh, you know, these incoming recruits or trying or spending a lot of energy to do so. Is, is, is that what it is? That's what, from my perspective, I can only imagine. You know what? There's, you know, there's the old adage, you know, when you when when you stop being willing to change, you're done. Yeah. And th- I would tell you, you referenced the email that I sent today. I would tell you, Paul, that this is the most challenging job I've had since I've been here, and it's because I feel like I've had to change, and you know, and. You know, I think people see me and perceive me as, you know, I, look, you see me on the sidelines. I'm an emotional guy. Yeah. I'm a demanding guy. I'm a demonstrative person. 
whether it be with the officials or in stature, the camera loves you, or, or, or our players. <laughs> well, I make it easy. Or our players, and what people see or know of me is exactly what they see on the field. What they don't see are the are, are the those six to nine o'clock moments that you and I are talking about, where you got in your guy in your office who just lost his grandma, or you got a guy who's having girlfriend problems or f- family problems, or mm-hmm. he's just struggling with being a teenager. Guys tear their ACL. Yeah. So what's what, what's changed? You know, you said the game's changed. The game hasn't changed that much. What it takes to be successful in terms of the on-field play, it's not that different. Mm-hmm. You need to be fundamentally sound. You need to not turn the ball over, you know, in an inordinate amount of time. You need to play good, solid defense. You need to get good goaltending. You know, so the, the the ingredients it takes to be successful from like a, a schematic point of view or from a fundamental point of view, it hadn't really changed. We're not none of us are reinventing the wheel. Where I have to change is my communi- way I, the way I communicate, the way I interact with our players. The players have changed. The young men that we're coaching are different than when you were here, mm-hmm. when Kyle was here, and when I first got here. You know, and the problem is people, and, and, and it's taken someone working with me. I'm working with a guy who is a former uh, Army Ranger, three-time Bronze Star winner, three-time winner uh, of uh, uh, a medal of, uh, of uh, a meritorious medal, 11 tours in Afghanistan. I mean, this guy's the real deal. He's a true hero. Yet... He's teaching me. You know, the question is when you're the leader of a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or you're the parent in a family or you're the leader of a team, who challenges you? Yep. Who says, hey, Paul, why are you doing that? How come you handled it that way? Paul, how did you communicating with that player that way? How did that help us? So I've worked with this gentleman, J.C. Glick, who is phenomenal and, and become a great friend. And he's helped me understand it's okay for me to evolve. Mm-hmm. And there are things we do great here, Paul, that don't need to change. And there are things that because young men are, are different, we've had to, to evolve and change. The problem is everybody thinks there's something bad about that. I was included in that. And everybody thinks, you know, millennials... I, I hear that word all the time, millennials. <laughs> you know what the difference between millennials are and, 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 and my generation? I would be, I was told to do something, and I always wanted to say, well, why? How come? But at that time, you just didn't do that. You shut your mouth and you did it. Right. Now, millennials ask, well, why? How come? Yeah. And when you think about it, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? So what's going to change? Are, 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 are the guys on our team going to change or is it time for the coach to adjust? And we sat down as a staff this summer and, you know, I sat with my AD who's new and talked with her a bit. Um, and we made a commitment to evolve, to do things differently. We played box lacrosse on Monday mornings. When you were here, Heck, we would have never given up a day of practice nope. to do that. Are you kidding me? Yep. More was more right. back when you were here. Not less was more. Right. On Tuesdays, we practiced 
normally like we would when you were here on Wednesdays, same thing. We're off on Thursdays. I chatted with a number of different coaches and one in particular that they do that. And I said, wow, you know what? That's interesting. And I did some more research and thought about it, shared it with my staff. We talked about it. It actually turns out Thursday for us here are a really heavy academic day. Yeah. And it works out better that we take Thursdays off. And then on Friday, we actually practice for an hour and then we scrimmage for an hour. Yeah. So you look at it and you're saying, wow, well, we're not going to be prepared for the fall scrimmage because we haven't done enough skeleton. We haven't done enough drilling. But we're getting so much in so many other ways. When you look at Johns Hopkins over the last two years, we've dovetailed at the end of the year. Both losses by a significant margin. I can sit here and, and, and two years ago, I don't want to say I can, I, I, can make, I can reason it and understand. We had four of our top six middies out. Yep. and I missed a month of the season in the hospital and my assistants were in charge and you can come up with plenty of reasons and excuses, but the bottom line is we didn't get the job done. Not by the Hopkins standard, and you know that standard. Last year, I can't say, well, we lost these guys and I was in the hospital. And so it's a sobering moment when the season ends and you go, wow, we've done this now two years in a row. Something's got to change. You know, and quite frankly, are the guys going to change? Well, we need them to change to a certain extent, but how are we going to facilitate that? Where is that going to start? Where does it start? Always at the top. Yeah. So it started with me, the way I communicate with them. If I told you I haven't raised my voice once this fall <laughs> in practice, yeah, see, you're laughing. And let me tell you, it's one of the hardest things for me to do, not because I like yelling. I think it's Because great. I'm intense and I'm passionate. But you know what? Is that the best way for me to be communicating with these guys? We sent them home this summer with no conditioning program. Did you ever go home without a conditioning program? For I got four a conditioning years? program going into my freshman year. Sure did. So we sent them a strength program because in the Big Ten, it's a big, physical, strong conference mm -hmm. athletically. And we feel like we got to get bigger, a little bit stronger. So that was the focus of the summer. Jay Dyer has done a great job. We told the guys... We don't need you to come back and be in great shape. Because you know what? No offense in the fall. No one's winning the national championship yeah, in the fall. Right. We don't need to be in great shape. We need to be in good enough shape to practice and to improve. And you want their minds to be fresh and hungry. At the right time of the year. Yeah. So now, no, you know, the grind isn't starting in the summer and then continuing in the fall, mm -hmm. then through the winter and into the spring. So that by the end of the spring, we're, we're exhausted. And we are. So we've changed that. And right now, we have a team that's much more excited to be at practice. We're trying to make the two hours that we're out on that field, maybe the half hour that we're in film or the hour, the, most, the best part of their day. I love the, the mindset and the realization that not only is there pressure for a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or the heads of house or, or a coach uh, th that you don't get the feedback as the leader of an organization as you do if, if you're an assistant coach or if you're a part of the associate group or your VP or even a president, you have your upper management 
to keep a watchful eye and give you advice. And I like that uh, you have leaned into that as a head coach. It, it shows a lot. And I don't think by now hearing that, that it's it's coincidence that in July you finally joined Twitter. You know? Do you think I was going to take the conversation that way? What took you so no, long? No, you know what? <laughs> does, does it align or it's what? Not, I mean, it's like, You know okay. what? Twitter's not me. I'm, you know me. <laughs> well, I'm you're, a pro- you're great I'm a on pro- the platform. I'm, 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 I to learn how to I'm, hashtag. Well, but. you know what? Whatever. <laughs> I'm there. You know what? You're right. If, we're gonna, if I'm going to do it, I might as well do it right. So you can send me an email and tell me exactly how I need to hashtag so I can get it right. Now I'm on the hook for but, that. But, you know, I... It's good for recruiting. Yeah. I'm not doing it because I enjoy it. No one cares. Does someone care that I did this? Or It's good. Yeah. For, it's good. I would well, say. I don't care. You're the biggest brand in lacrosse. I don't care. <laughs> so I'm thinking if I don't care, who else would care? We live in a different world. Mm-hmm. And this is how young people communicate. Mm-hmm. It's usually important for our program to have a Twitter account. I didn't feel like it was important for me to have one. And you know what? I'm a representative of Johns Hopkins. I'm, I'm, I'm an arm of Johns Hopkins. So if I can help promote Johns Hopkins or the positive things that we're doing or our guys are doing, then, 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 then I need to, to do that. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. You talk about someone challenging. Who challenges you? Who says to Paul Rabel, hey, Paul, what are you doing? I know your dad does. Yeah. And, and, and I, I know that. I know Alan all too well. But for me, having an outsider that's not here all the time say, hey, coach, what were you thinking there? Why'd you do that? Was there a better way to handle that? I mean, I'm walking around last night grocery shopping, and it's, sadly enough, my peaceful place is grocery shopping. I, I go, I put my headphones in, and I'll walk around, and it, it, it's quiet, it's peaceful. I love it. It's air-conditioned. Yeah, and I, I took my earphones. I'm on the phone with JC last night, talking for an hour. Yeah, and we're talking about how'd practice go, what happened. Well, when that happened, what'd you do? How'd you handle it? You know, how'd the guys react? And it's been really helpful to have someone to bounce ideas off of. You know, Coach Belichick's been that guy for me as well. Yeah, but I can't call him every night. He's busy. So having Someone challenged me to be better. I'm going to challenge myself. I knew we had to adjust and change, but to have someone say, hey, this is the right thing to do. You know, so I, I, I don't know. Was it you who wrote it in a, in a Twitter that said one of the most important thing a leader can do is ask for help. Is ask for help. Yep. I saw that not long ago. I actually texted it to you. It was from Howard yes. Schultz, the CEO and, of Starbucks. And, and you know what? At 8 and 7, we need to fix it. Hopkins is a proud program. Our standards aren't changing just because I'm not jumping up and down and going crazy. Our expectations of practice haven't changed. Our way of communicating them have. And, and you know, we haven't seen the results of it yet. We got a long year ahead of us, but I believe we're, we're I believe we're growing and making progress, and it's been the right thing to do for me and 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 for this program. And look, you know, no need to toot my you know for everybody to say, hey, great job. I'm doing what I should be doing. Um, it's just different, and change sometimes 
is hard and it's hard when you've had success. I had success the way we were doing it with you guys. Yeah. I had success at Cornell doing it that way. We had success. And now some things are different. Young people are a little bit different. The game, you know, the, the pressures on you, these guys are so different. Can you, I, I don't, I mean, you're, you're, you're the king of Twitter. I mean, you got your whole Rabel's army. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Instagram and all this. I, 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 I follow you. I follow you. I, I know what you eat every morning. <laughs> You know, and I can tell you it's a lot different than what I'm eating. You're eating, you know, egg whites and me, you know, I'm eating a bowl of Cheerios. But, 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 I, it, I hear you. Things have changed. The, listen, the, the, the blessing of graduating into social media, which back in 2008, Facebook launched their fan pages. I didn't adopt Twitter and Instagram until 08, 09. And so I was in a much more, secure place personally, maybe not as much so uh, as, as I would like to have thought, but I thought back then I was and professionally, but I took on those platforms purely as, as marketing engines and communicative platforms to the lacrosse audience to try and grow the pro game. So I was never, and still to this day, don't use the platform to interact with peers, family and friends. I'll acknowledge that I, I think I miss the perks, but I certainly don't have to deal with the pressure, I think, is what you're alluding to. As kids who are on the platform at an early age now, and, and many of them are, are students here, and then even a lot of their predecessors, they're on those platforms to interact. And they're constantly being judged by the oh amount of likes they get on a post. They're constantly many of them looking don't for post. approval. That's right. Yeah, I, so it's a different – they use the platform different than I do. Yeah, and so I, 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 can, I would agree with that. I, I would I, uh, agree with I that. I can certainly empathize and, and, and would feel like I would I – would, uh, I would be prisoner to the, a lot of those social influences and pressures had I had I been yeah, well, a student now. You know what? You think about it. I think about when I played. When I played a lousy game, I knew I played a lousy game. My coach told me I played a lousy game. My father might have told me, or my teammates told me I played a lousy game. You didn't have to hear it game. all week from Twitter. But I didn't have to hear it all week on a forum or in an Instagram or Twitter, and I didn't have to see a picture or a video of me getting run by, going over someone's head. It happened. It was over. We moved on. Yeah. And mm. the pressures that these young folks are dealing with right now are so much greater than we realize. You know, and, and we live in a society where not just young people, everybody feels like they have to document everything they do. Well, they go went on vacation. There's pictures of it. Yeah. They went to the store. There's pictures of it. They did something. Look, I went and visited a young man at the hospital, mm -hmm. and I I put that out there, and I put that out there because I wanted his story to get out there. Mm -hmm. But we're all documenting everything we do, and I don't have a Facebook page. I don't have you know I don't usually Twitter personal stuff. Right. I, I don't. I don't communicate with, with relatives or friends or family. I, I, I don't do it. But the game has changed. And I don't mean the game of lacrosse. The game of life has changed. And, you know, if it's changed there, it leaks into the workplace. It leaks into the, the, the sports world. And, and we're all dealing with it. And you know what? The one that deals with it, is be it best is the one that's going to be most successful. I mean, I, I referenced... Alabama, and I appreciate the level of success they've had, they've found a way to not be comfortable. 
Mm-hmm. They've found a way to feel like they still have something to prove. And Clemson, you know, although they stumbled the other night, right? Um, because they got comfortable, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, they've they've done a really good job with that. Um, you know, it's really interesting to watch those things and study. You know how companies become successful and maintain success. I marvel at the things Princeton did in the 90s. Mm -hmm. But that even dropped off because maintaining, getting there is, I think, is easy. I don't mean easy, but is the easier part. Staying there. I mean, look at the Patriots. What they've done is just amazing. Yeah. I don't know who, who, uh, who said this, but I used to think about it often in particular when I was a student here is that it's, it's more difficult to maintain success than it is to achieve it. No doubt. And that's what I think that's what you're referencing. Although I will say we've spent a lot of time on the, the, the team and the relationship with the players. And there are a number of programs that graduate. Well, this program whether you measure success by championships or not, which we've won a lot at Hopkins and you've won a lot as a player and a coach, the, the people that graduate and, and leave these doors with a degree from Johns Hopkins and the relationships that they maintain for a lifetime with you and their peers is, is success by definition. Look, we're, we're, we're blessed to be at a really – a great place. Johns Hopkins has a tradition of excellence across the board. You know, forget lacrosse for a second. You're talking about a world-renowned academic institution. You're talking about campuses all around the world in Bologna and Beijing and, you know, SICE, the School of International Studies in D.C. and the Peabody Conservatory. Uh, all these places that are associated with, associated with Hopkins are nothing but huge successes. And we're not the only one achieving that. There are other institutions that are doing that as well. But we're at a place where excellence is a standard. And that same standard that we have academically and we have socially, we have athletically as well. And, you know, the other other thing is, think about how blessed you were and I was to play at a place that makes lacrosse a priority. In homecoming at most places is a football game. Here, it's a lacrosse game. That doesn't mean that it, a place that doesn't have lacrosse at home for homecoming is a bad place or a bad thing. You know, when I talk to kids, I, I don't want to tell them that we're better. You know, I, I think that's a rather arrogant statement to make. And again, we all have our personal feelings, as every coach does at, at the institution. But we are different, you know. And, and I think for a guy like you, and a guy like me, the fact that we were different was a real positive uh, attribute uh, and a positive thing for us. I think that's a great place to stop for now. Uh, my guess is that we'll do a part two if you can carve out some six o'clock to nine o'clock hours for me. I got it this season. But I'll add to to what you had said around uh, homecoming being in the spring, and I remember wanting to go to North Carolina and the ACC schools and going to a high school that resembled a lot of uh, what I was looking for, what I thought I was looking for in an ACC. And you had added two more components. One, hey, Paul, the lacrosse lines are stitched on our field. The football lines are painted. No disrespect to football, but those lines wash off. 
this is the only field in the country that's lacrosse lines are stitched. That was one. And two, I appreciate your passion for basketball and soccer and football, given that you played those games growing up and your high school was really talented and you liked cheering on your peers. But do you want to be in the stands or do you want to be on the field and the people in the stands cheering you on? And and those two, I, you talk about my open mind, I think I was probably closed mind, but that was very, that was very uh, well put and it was very true. And it was an experience of four years that has helped mold and shape me to who I am today. And I'm grateful that you've been a part of my life. And thanks for sitting down with me, brother. Listen, this has been, uh, this may be good for you. This has been really enjoyable for me to be able to catch up with you and see what you're doing. And uh, I'm awful proud of your successes. Um, you, uh, you continue to make me proud, but more importantly, you continue to make Johns Hopkins proud. If you enjoyed Coach Petro as much as I did, please be sure to let us know. Here are my big takeaways. Number one, success takes two things, one of which is a commonality amongst most of the guests on the show thus far, and that's to be successful, you have to work really, really, really hard. Flat out, no way around it. And number two, don't be afraid to fail, or as Coach put it, take risk and put yourself out there. Takeaway number two, actively solicit feedback. Often the CEO, head coach, or entrepreneur doesn't have anyone to check her or him down. So surround yourself with a performance coach, a therapist, or board of advisors. Shout out Mike, Dave, Lindsay, and John. Continue the conversation with me on social media and especially with Coach. He's new to Twitter. At Paul Rabel, and his handle is at CoachPetro43. Be the first to listen to future episodes as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with New England Patriots head coach, and close friend of Coach Petro, Bill Belichick, Team USA women's soccer captain Julie Foudy, NFL quarterback Drew Brees, and NBA star Jeremy Lin, who we're praying for a speedy recovery. You can find all these episodes and more on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. There's a shortcut to our show notes, including everything that Coach Petro and I discussed, highlights, links, and more. Visit suitinguppodcast.com. And that's it. Thank you all very much for tuning in again, or if this is your first time, welcome. We have four awesome guest recordings next week. Andrew is leading our research. Shout out AM. Things are heating up. Thanks again, Coach Petro.